This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 13. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. We are, of course, on Session 13, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. And uh, let's see, I'm, I'm sitting here at the computer. I've got a, you'll hear it now. This is the French press, of course, that I'm, that's right. That's, that's right. The French press full of coffee, ready to go. I'm about to hop on a um, Skype call with Billy Anderson. And if you listen to any kind of what I would call doom metal or doom, yeah, I'll just say doom metal then you know Billy Anderson's name. Not all of them, of course, categorized as doom metal, but I mean, that's a, lo a lot of the bands that Billy works with uh, fall into that category. We'll just call it heavy rock in general. How about that? Um, he has worked with uh, Mr. Bungle, Neurosis, The Melvins, uh, L7, Unsane, Red House Painters, High on Fire, I Hate God, and he's also a member of, of several bands, of which, of course, we'll talk about in the interview uh, shortly coming up here. So Billy Anderson, yeah. And I've actually known Billy since around 1988 or 1980. Yeah, 1988. Yeah, that's right. Just be um, out here in San Francisco, just before the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake. I remember I, I met him, I think, at a guitar center at some point. I think that's it. I'll figure that out in the interview. Anyway, Billy's going to be on today, and I'm really looking forward to it. He's a hardworking guy. He seems to not ever take a break. He's a workaholic, and uh, we'll talk about that in the interview. Stay tuned for that, of course. And I also want to give a special shout-out to our friends over in Istanbul, Turkey. Seems we have a fan base in Istanbul listening. So hello to everybody in Istanbul that's listening. Thanks again. So a little bit of announcement. You know, we've been putting out the show twice a month on the 1st and the 15th, payday, of course, for most people. Uh, not if you're a freelancer, of course. Anyways, I've decided to pick up the pace a bit. So we're going to uh, press ahead with one show every week. Every Monday, I'm going to give you a new show to listen to. And uh, I, I hope, I can, hope I can keep up the pace for you. And I hope we can uh, not have any, any issues there. Sorry, pouring my coffee here. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of people lined up and it's, you know, the, the interviews were in the past kind of thrown together, not at the last minute, but you know, I didn't have to do too much planning because there was two weeks between every show. Well, now I've got a, a, a schedule. I've got a calendar laid out just in the interest of, uh, you know, keeping it a surprise. I don't want to tell you everybody that's coming up, but, uh, I definitely have some great people coming up and I'm going to try to span you know, as I've said in the past, uh, a couple podcasts ago, we're going to try to get some live sound people, some location sound people, uh, video game sound people. We're going to try to definitely cover all the different aspects of, of audio recording in the freelance world. And, uh, yeah, so that's what's coming up. Let's see what's on my radar. There's this new software I saw. It's called, it's from a company called Sonarworks. Let me go over the website now these guys put out this software that claims that their tagline is the most accurate speaker and room calibration software delivering reference sound you can trust in under 15 minutes well i'm going to put that to the test um scott evans has a measurement microphone he's going to lend me he's <laughs> he lent it to me before and of course it just sat here on my desk for almost two months until i returned it and I promised him I wouldn't hold on to it this that long uh, this next time, but we're going to download the trial of, um, or I'm going to download the trial of the software from Sonarworks. I'm going to borrow Scott's measurement microphone, and I'm just going to do the download, you know, the demo is like, a, I don't know, a, probably a two-week trial, I assume, something like that. Anyways, I'm going to try it out here in my mix room and see uh, what I think, and I'll give you my feedback in the next podcast and we'll see how that works. Anyhow, um, also want to give a shout out to, uh, two people that help make this podcast possible beyond myself and beyond, beyond the help of course, from uh, gear sluts. That is Cliff Truesdale. Cliff of course created the music that you hear. The song is known as bruises 
And I called Cliff up and said, Hey, I need a song for this podcast that I'm starting up. And, you know, it's going to be called the Working Class Audio Podcast. So I need something that you consider working class musically. And, and you know, I told him, I said, my thoughts, of course, would be that it would be uh, something kind of straight ahead rock, kind of ACDC-like. You know, give me give me what you got. And uh, Cliff came up with that. So I just, uh, that's really helpful. And I, and I really appreciate that uh, Cliff has contributed that to the podcast. So here's to you, Cliff. I raise a coffee cup. And the voice that you hear is Chuck Smith. Chuck is a person that I met and worked with and uh, learned a lot from working over at KFOG for a year in San Francisco. Eventually, Chuck left KFOG and moved down to Mexico. And what an incredible voice talent. Um, experienced in many aspects of radio, but I tell you, one thing I really like about Chuck is his voice. And I thought, when I do this show, I want Chuck's voice as the intro. So that's Chuck Smith that you hear there. And uh, I'll put links to their website on the Working Class Audio page. So there you go. All right. Well, let's get to it with Billy Anderson and uh, jump right into this conversation. Hope you enjoy it. And thanks again for tuning in. And we'll talk after the uh, interview. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Hey, Matt. Hey, dude. How are you? Good, man. How are you? Good. Long time. I know. I, I think the last time I spoke or saw you, or well, other than Facebook, was uh, New Orleans. New Orleans at the TapeCon thing. Yeah. That was uh, 10 years ago or more. Yeah, it was over 10 years ago. Man. How you been, man? I've been good. I've been, uh, you know, just trying to keep my head above the water. So you're still in the Bay. Oh, yeah. You're in Portland, right? Yeah, yeah. I moved up here about uh, just over two years ago. God, I love it there. I've always loved it here, you know. Uh, I've wanted to move up here well before I actually did. Uh, I was in Berkeley and... Uh, I had just moved into a house on uh, Russell Street by Telegraph, and uh, I was in there literally like just over a month, and the fucking place burned down. Oh shit! I had just moved in, so a lot of my, you know, like my collections, like my vinyl collection, and uh, you know, my antiques for my family and stuff, they were still in storage, luckily. But I lost, you know, my all my work stuff, like my Pro Tools shit, my clothes, my bedding, you know, stuff like that, replaceable stuff, you know. But I got out with my ass and my dog and uh i was pretty happy about that yeah it, it's what made me leave the bay area because i basically had no place to go and i reluctantly moved back to la because a friend of mine you know offered to let me stay in, at his big place until i got back on my feet which i did you know uh but that entire time i was thinking dude i the whole time the two years i was in la i made two albums there in that same two years i made seven records in portland wow and that's not to mention records i made other places it's just so hard to make records in la because studios are outlandishly expensive i don't have any experience with the cost of studios in los angeles take different fur in san francisco or shark bite in oakland uh times three at least usually for la wow yeah and for not as good a studio or do you think that that's because of the record industry infrastructure that exists still in los angeles or because obviously they charge that and they can get that so there's obviously a demand or is it do you think people just accept that's how it is and I think it's kind of some of all of those. Uh, it's what people expect to pay. And, you know, if bands don't pay it, they'll get it from commercial jingle people, you know, or things like that. It's it's what people expect to pay and they, you know, they pay it. Whereas if you, you know, buy the band like 400 bucks for the plane tickets and go to Oakland, you can record for about a third of the price. <laughs> it's, I think it's just what people expect to pay. And if bands don't pay the price, you know, they can fill their time. You know, there's studios that have been there since the 60s that are still going strong and there's some that have gone under uh like sound city it it was there forever and ever and ever and uh, big big studios like that have had a hard time staying afloat for whatever the reasons you know like the whole home recording adat thing in the 90s kind of ruined a lot of big studios i think but uh la was just a glut of there was studios on every corner but there are still a lot of studios there and they get top dollar Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And you and I, of course, have a, a studio in common in, in Sharkbite. We both yeah. do work out of there. Yeah. One of my favorite places on earth. And hey, there's parking. Dude, there's so much parking. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love working at different for, uh, you know, for various reasons. They, they just installed a, a B room upstairs in the old office, uh, which I want to try. But uh, yeah, good luck parking anywhere near the place. Yeah. Oh, I heard about their B room that, that, that Patrick put in there. 
looks yeah. and it looks looks good and it looks like uh price wise it's it's somewhat fair it's it's a good bridge for people that like to be there but can't afford the big room especially if you're just mixing you know like why well, use that giant ssl for pro tools you know <laughs> yeah or if you're just doing vocals you know why have pay for that big room and big ssl when you're just going to be in pro tools anyway you know right uh, that's kind of what that room's about and it, yeah it's a fair price especially for the mission district let's go back a little bit just for the listener first of all thanks for agreeing to be on the show you of all people i thought billy would be great on this show but i hadn't talked to you in a long time and and hadn't really put my focus on talking to you about it and then randomly i saw your comment on facebook and i was like oh I got to reach out to Billy and get him on the show. That was so coincidental. Like I, I was just going through my, uh, I just opened up my Facebook on the news feed and, uh, saw that link on there and I checked it out and I was like, Oh, fucking Matt, that's awesome that you're doing that. You know, like, and it was a really cool interview. So I just hit you up and then all of a sudden we're doing this. It's cool. I've uh, known you forever, dude. I was talking to Scott Evans actually about you. And I said, uh, this is before that whole Facebook thing. I said, uh, yeah, I got to get Billy on the show. I've, I've actually, and I started to think back and I thought, I have a flashback of being in Guitar Center talking to you <laughs> uh, and when it was at South Venice and Mission in San Francisco. Yep. I worked there. So did you, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I worked there too. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we, I can't remember if we worked there at the same, you know, we did work there at the same time, didn't my, we? My last day was the day before the earthquake. Okay. And I was fired with six or seven other guys before the earthquake. Okay. Yeah, uh, they told us not to go back to work for two days, and I just never went back. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so we worked at Guitar Center together. Um, I, mem- I remember when we met was at a Sextant show. Oh, wow. You guys played at I-Beam. I was like, man, these guys are red. And I, I think I talked to you for like two minutes. I went, And then you guys opened for Jane's Addiction at the Fillmore? At the maybe? Fillmore, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, I went and saw that, and then uh, I don't know. That's, that's how long I've known your ass. Other than the people that I moved to San Francisco with, you and I think... Simone White, who, uh, I don't know if you remember Simone. Uh, Simone White was the drummer in Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. Yeah, of course. I I talked to him once in a while on Facebook. So I think I've known you and Simone White the longest of of all the Bay Area people that I've met. So Yeah, going back to the 80s, man. I don't remember when you started to get into recording, but I have an association from that time period of you working at a studio called Razor's Edge. Yep, that's where I started. And what made you get into it? Um, well, I had been in Los Angeles. I had been in college in Long Beach, actually, doing sports. And I quickly learned that, you know, college baseball was not all I thought it would be. And so, um, you know, I had always been a musician. I've been a musician since I was four. And uh, I really was interested in recording. I had tried to record my band at a studio in a, where I grew up in the desert. The guy there just didn't get the music and hated us and hated how we looked and i thought to myself well man i could probably learn how to do this and he showed me a couple things and left and uh that's how i that was the first recording i made and then when i bottomed out in sports in long beach i i just hightailed it straight to la and started trying to intern in studios that didn't last because you know that was the mid late 80s that was when all the glam stuff was going on in la and i wasn't really interested in that kind of music but i saw a big scene developing in san francisco a couple different ones, you know, like the whole thrash metal thing and the whole, you know, Primus thrash funk scene that uh, was going on. And I was like, San Francisco looks like a great place. And uh, I moved there. And within a week, I was working at Razor's Edge. Like my, my manager at the record store I worked at had recorded there, introduced me to the owner. And uh, within a week, I was basically there making coffee and staying late. Where was that uh, in San Francisco? Razor's Edge it was on uh, Divisadero and Fell. There's a liquor store right there. It's the house right next to it. It was Anne Rice's house. Interview with a vampire, Anne Rice. Yeah, yeah. She lived there when she lived in San Francisco. And uh, it was the, the Razor's Edge was the bottom floor. Uh, it's an old Victorian that, you know, Anne Rice lived in. There was offices up there when we had the studio there. But uh, it was a pretty small studio. When I started there, he had like a Ramza 16 channel board and a Tascam MS-16. And it ended up where we had an Ampex uh, MM-1100 and a Trident TSM. You know, he parlayed wisely and upgraded his gear and uh, ended up with pretty cool gear there and a lot of really cool bands recorded there. What was the progression out of Razor's Edge at that time? Um, for me, it was basically happened like I was I was busting balls and the owner, uh, you know, really cool and basically would let me stay 
after sessions that I was assisting on and work on my own music. That's kind of how I learned. But within a couple of years, bands were coming to to record with me sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say it, but like not with him. And I don't know, I was really busy there. And uh, he and I stopped sort of getting along because of this for some reason. And I just kind of decided, man, I, I could just go independent because all these bands want to record and we don't have to do it here. And I had in the interim learned about studios like Brilliant. Remember Brilliant? Oh, yeah. Norm Kerner. That room was amazing. And, you know, Hyde Street, of course, and uh, uh, Different Fur. And uh, that's right around the time I started working with those Bungle guys and Neurosis. And uh, I just didn't really see a reason to stay tied to that place, you know, when there was a whole big world out there. And uh, so I just kind of quit, you know. And uh, it was not too long after that that he sold that studio. Uh, So I think I kind of got out just in time. Yeah. Do you recall, like... Early on when you were starting to take off and actually starting to leave Razor's Edge, do do you recall having any fears of how the other studios worked or the dynamic of them? Or, like, do you remember any of your concerns or fears at that time? Yeah, I mean, I had sort of cut my teeth at this one studio. And though I had briefly gone to school, I was pretty young, early mid-20s, like, how do other studios work? Will I know how to use the gear? And, you know, of course, it's just a nervous thing. And you you calm down and you realize you do know how to use most of it. But I had fears like that, and uh, I didn't really have a problem with the dynamics that happen at studios, like the, the people and stuff. Like you know, that was always pretty natural, just person to person kind of stuff. I, I mostly had adventures slash slight fears about gear that I had never used. Like I remember going to do my first session on an SSL and just being like, "Holy fuck!" I was terrified. But uh, once I started doing it, I was like, yeah, this is pretty easy, you know? As far as the people thing, it was always pretty natural, you know? It's like a lot of people that work in studios or have similar MOs. It's like we're all kind of a team. And you seem to be in on the ground level for some pretty, like like you say, uh, Mr. Bungle, Neurosis, the Melvins. Um, uh, you seem to be in and around a scene of people that went on to have legendary status for some people. Yeah, you know, I feel really lucky, man. A lot of those bands I came to work with because I also was doing front of house and monitors at the Kennel Club, which was right across the street. Mm. And I met a lot of those bands at the Kennel Club, like Neurosis. The Melvins had been recording at Razor's Edge, but, uh, you know, a lot of those bands I ended up meeting at the Kennel Club. It was just a great, great time in San Francisco for music. You know, there was just a, a glut of amazing bands. Uh, a lot of bands that either I didn't meet at the Kennel Club or hadn't already been there uh, wanted to record there because like bands like the Melvins had recorded there. Like Sleep wanted to come and record there because the Melvins had recorded there. And the Melvins first went there because it was down the street from Dale's house, I think. So, <laughs> you know, it was a kind of a stair step thing. But yeah, um, it was just a great time for music in San Francisco. And that was like the friendly neighborhood studio that would, you know, give you a deal. And, you know, a lot of cool bands recorded there. It was just like the place to go for, you know, a bunch of years. You know, you got out of Razor's Edge and you moved on to the other studios like Different Fur and and Brilliant. And, and what what came next? What like what was the next phase, do you think? Next phase? Um, I started touring a lot. I toured with the Melvins for many years, like four or five years. And I did some touring also with Neurosis and Seven Year Bitch and uh, Red House Painters, but uh, mostly with the Melvins. But yeah, I, I, I did the better part of like 92 through, say, 97 touring uh, mostly. And then I'd come home and play with my band or bands and, you know, do whatever work I could studio wise. There was plenty of that. But uh, I was doing a lot of touring after after the Razor's Edge thing, and I was just basically in Melvin's land for a few years. I ended up playing bass for a while. Oh wow! Um, this is a long story, but uh, I ended up playing bass on a couple songs on Houdini, and then some subsequent shows that were booked. Which was, you know, how, how do you beat joining your favorite band? You know, <laughs> I already knew the songs, and it was like we practiced a couple times and played a couple shows. But you were when you were touring, you were doing front of house, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we we were doing the you know those Nirvana tours and Breeders and Primus. We did some Rush shows. Amazing. That was yeah, that was a great great time. And though I wasn't getting to play as much as I wanted to, and I was doing less studio stuff, I was you know still having the time of my life. And I did actually meet a lot of bands that I ended up recording during that time. So 
I came, you know, I stopped touring with the Melvins and I just dove full into the recording thing. I associate now your work that you do is primarily with, I guess what I would say is like doom bands. There's a lot of that going on. Is, yeah, but is that all there is or is there more to it? I would say that that's uh, right now, that's a good part of it, but that's kind of what's going on in, in the heavy music world. I mean, I, that's not all I do. You know, I do a lot of rock. I'm, I'm doing a lot of, uh, a, like, acoustic-y stuff for a few different people, ambient stuff. But uh, Portland is a place where you can find doom on every corner at every show, you know. And there's a lot of really good bands, you know, that are really good at it. And it's uh, not a label that I particularly like because, to me, doom is <laughs> something, to, you know. Like, you want doom, go to, like, Warsaw in 39. That's doom. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know what I mean? But it's like, uh, they call it doom and it's just heavy music to me, man. And I really liked it. And there's a band, there's a lot of bands that are really good at it, but, uh, I wouldn't say that's all I do. It's just, it, you know, you know how bands are, they hear a, one of their favorite albums and they want to sound like that. And they look on the credits and see who did it. And, you know, and it just snowballs and they get the same gear and they want to have the same tone. And I always say the same cheeky thing like well you want to sound like that you got to live that life you know go get that job and get fired from it and you know break up the girlfriend right before recording right <laughs> but, uh, but you know how it is man it's like bands want to sound like a record they heard or you know they're influenced by it and so they come to the guy who made it and it, it kind of snowballs i also am under the impression that you're a workaholic based on uh, yeah. some of the things i've read and seen uh that you just work all the time yeah knock on wood obviously you want to work because pays the bills but are people just finding out about you word of mouth and looking at record covers that's how it is a lot of times yeah like uh record covers are you know now with the internet it's uh uh you don't really even have to look at the record cover but uh, a lot of it's word of mouth around here you know there's there's people that see me at shows and and recognize me from whatever facebook or just from having you know met in person like introduced by a band that i've been recording or something but yeah I, you know to get business i used to have to go to shows like you know th three four nights a week and meet bands and it's it's not like that anymore you know bands come to me and it's really really cool like i actually have to you know say no sometimes because there's just not enough time in the in a week you know and i've actually in the past six months consciously tried to schedule at least a day off a week doesn't always happen but it's the trying that counts i think i think i read an interview i think it was uh in an oregon newspaper uh with you that said yeah i tried to take a day off and lay in the bed and watch movies but then after like an hour or two i was like i gotta work i gotta do something it's true and i don't know what to do with days off i try it you know i lay there i'm like uh, i could be editing that or working on that or you know i am truly a workaholic and i always make the joke my boss is a slave driver you know <laughs> hate that guy but uh but then you are that guy yeah yeah we fight all the time me and my boss at the end of the day it's just you know i, I grew up in a strong uh, in a household with a really strong work ethic you know we were all meant to get jobs when we could reach the counter you know, like my grandparents owned a laundromat and, you know, we all had to work and you wanted a car or something, you had to buy it and earn the money for it. And it's just like, it's just how I am, man. I just like working and like when a band is like super stoked about their album and ask me back. And, you know, if you don't work your balls off, that doesn't happen. The payoff is way better than the exhaustion that sometimes comes, you know, right to me. So I just find myself pushing it and I... I, I need a kick in the butt sometimes to actually slow it down and, you know, take some days off so I don't go crazy from looking at waveforms and stuff like that. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about uh, workflow. Now, obviously, in the days of Razor's Edge, it was analog. And, of course, we, we went through, I don't, and I don't know if you spent any time in the, the days of the DA88 or the, or the ADAT, but... Oh, yeah. But, of course, you know, now we are in the land of Pro Tools, and I know you're a Pro Tools user, Um let's just talk about workflow. I don't want to talk about digital versus analog or anything like that, but I've seen your setup just in, in a couple of videos. Do you work out of your home uh, for mixing? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have basically three bedrooms. One I sleep in. One is where my pro tools, you know, on my mixing board and all that stuff is. And uh, one of is uh, one bedroom is I do vocals and guitar and there's, you know, tie lines between the rooms and 
it works out great because when I work here, I don't charge for the studio. I just charge for me. And so it, it saves bands a lot of money, you know, doing vocals in a place where they're just chilling and we, you know, they can go outside and barbecue if they want it. They don't have the big studio overhead and it makes for a more relaxed vocal and it allows bands that wouldn't be able to pay for a studio and an engineer producer, you know, able to do it. Right. And it's, it's a similar, if not better pro tools rig than a lot of studios and, and mics too. And so why not? I, I like it. It lends itself to me not leaving the house sometimes. You know? <laughs> like I have to actually I have to force myself to go hiking in the beautiful areas around here, you know, just leave the house. But uh, it works out great for bands and, and for me too, you know. What kind of Pro Tools rig do you have? I have a uh, Mac Pro with a Pro Tools HD3 XL, um, Pro Tools 10. It's a pretty basic rig. I have pretty much every plugin you could have for the system which is, you know, as we know, the key to having a decent system is your plugins. But um, I use a summing mixer. I use a, a Black Lion summing mixer and some good line pre's. Um, I have some API line pre's for makeup gain. And, you know, I got some Atom speakers and little Yamaha uh, reference speakers. It's a pretty cool setup, you know. I like it. Yeah, I go through summing mixer and uh, uh, one of three or four different uh, preamps for makeup gain, depending on what it is, you know. And I have some cool outboard analog stuff. I have a couple of LA4s. and It's it's the best of everything, man. It's like I can go analog. Um, I even have a 2-inch 16 track that I can use if I want to, but I hardly ever use it because it's a beast. <laughs> but uh, Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if I've already gone on Pro Tools, you know, I'm not one of those guys that will put it back on tape just to say you went to tape. But uh, it's, uh, it's a good machine, but uh, I hardly ever use it. Uh, but, yeah, man, I, I like mixing in pro tools you know you got so many options i remember back in the day you know there's so much stuff you can do in pro tools that you just can't do with a razor blade and you could do it faster and a lot faster yeah i was talking to this band the other day we uh did this backwards thing you know like a backwards hi-hat during a whole part and i'm like on tape that would have taken an entire day <laughs> to put a backwards reverb on a hi-hat for a whole part uh pro tools you just you know it's a plug-in it takes like five seconds we did the whole thing in like eight minutes you know, things like that, like crossfades, you can't do on tape. I mean, I got pretty handy with a razor blade, but there's only so much you can do. Do you remember the point at which Pro Tools became a part of your, your working method? I do, because I resisted it for years. <laughs> I, res I didn't do my first album completely in Pro Tools till like 2004. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'd used it for uh, editing and I, d I did one album where I mixed in Pro Tools but had recorded on tape. But uh, my first album start to finish in Pro Tools was an album for Ludacra, um, 2004. And I resisted it for years, uh, mostly because of the way it sounded. Like, it didn't start sounding good until the HD interfaces came out, I think. And so but the, by the time I started using it, I already knew how to use it more or less and, you know, trial by fire. But uh, I became a huge fan. And to this day, if I can record on tape and then transfer to Pro Tools, I'll do it that way because I love the way tape sounds, depending on the band. The, because you have your your place at home, when you need to go do a full-on tracking session, do you just go where the band is and or their preference? Or do are there certain studios you say, okay, well, I want to go here? Or... Um, it depends on, you know, if we're here in Portland, I have a, a few go-to studios that I really like. Um, one of them is called Type Foundry. It's a co-op. Uh, one of the guys used to own a studio in San Francisco called Closer. I don't know if you remember that place. It's just a nice big open warehouse. Not quite as tall as, say, Brilliant, you know, but it's a big open warehouse, lots of space. And they have a Trident board and a tape machine and lots of space and rooms. And uh, it's cheap. You know, it's real, real cheap. And I like recording there. And uh, there's another place called Cloud City, which is, uh, I don't know if you know Justin Phelps. He used to work at Closer. Yeah. Uh, he is, he runs that place. Uh, he's head engineer there and he's part owner as far as gear. Um, cause city's really cool. It's, they got a TSN there too. And, uh, yeah, those are my two go-to studios here. There's a lot of good studios here. I just, you know, haven't had a chance to go check them all out, you know. As far as travel is concerned, do, do you find yourself traveling much these days for recording? Yeah, uh, about the same as always. You know, I, uh, I'm going to Brazil in July to record a record down there. And um, I'll be going to Tennessee in May. Uh, no, I'm sorry, in September to do a record there. You know, it's about the same. I do a couple 
maybe three records a year that are you know bigger ones that are out of town uh, maybe one or two out of the country like i'm going to la at the end of next month to do a record down there for this band behold the monolith um who i've done a bunch of stuff with and i travel quite a bit i also go on tour with agaloc who i also record but um, i'm their front of house guy and they tour once a year a big tour so I, I travel with them and sometimes when i'm in europe with them i'll i'll try to extend it and do a record before or after you know while i'm over there do you have a manager i don't i don't let me kind of dive in and get a little micro for a sec <laughs> so okay you, you're going to go to brazil yeah who are you going to work with in brazil and how did that that come up uh the band is called labyrintho labyrinth they did some touring in south america with a band from Belgium that I've recorded a bunch of stuff with uh, called Amon Ra. And Amon Ra recommended me to them, and they contacted me. And uh, turns out the drummer owns a really, really nice studio there. So basically, I got hooked up with Labyrintho through a band from Belgium that I've worked with. They buy out the plane ticket, and they put me up in their house or whatever. And it's a cool thing. It's a real cool thing. Well, now down there for about two weeks do they make the arrangements for you or do you make the arrangements um we kind of come up with the dates and stuff together and then they uh for instance uh well since it's their studio they just were able to book out the time there if they didn't own the studio i would have to you know somehow figure out what dates and contact the studio and stuff but it's, since it's theirs that wasn't a problem yeah they buy the, they bought the plane ticket like i sent them my frequent flyer miles or whatever and they bought the ticket in my name and I have to go get a visa and stuff like that. But uh, I, I had a manager for a while. It was it was great. Uh, uh, but it was also really hard because having somebody speak on your behalf is kind of difficult, you know. Uh, it, it helped a lot in some ways. In some ways, it was really, really difficult. But uh, uh, I tried it, and it, I haven't really thought about doing it again. It just it seems easier to just do it myself, you know. It's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Scheduling and and you know, booking hotels and studios and keeping everything, you know, sorted. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah, because, I mean, if you're working a lot in general and then, you know, you stop and you're tired, I guess, I, for me, I mean, the last thing I'd want to do is get on the internet and navigate buying a ticket to Brazil yeah. or getting a visa. Yeah, and it's it's not easy, but it's just it's just how I know to do things, you know, like, I wouldn't know where to begin having a manager go get a visa for me. I don't think I could even do that, you know. And ultimately, <laughs> if I had a manager and they were trying to set up a trip to Brazil, that she'd have to ask me all the questions anyway. So I might as well just do it, my, you know, cut out the middle person, you know. Okay, so that, that makes sense. And obviously, uh, you know, going out of the country, that's that's a bigger, little bit of a challenge in some ways. Not Not so much, I guess. But going to Tennessee or L.A., I mean – no big deal there. You just get on the phone yeah. with the band, right? And make your yeah. arrangements. And I assume the band yeah, buys yeah. your ticket. Yeah. They always, uh, okay. uh, transportation and lodging, if, if any, you know, a lot of times studios have a residential, you know, an apartment, I'll stay there. Uh, if that's the case, or if not, it, you know, I, I don't have a lot of requirements, but I just ask for like my own private room that I can be quiet in, you know, when we're not working. If I, if I have to stay at somebody's right. house, if none of those are available, I ask for a cheap but clean hotel. And that's, you know, that's about it. Cause we're ultimately we're in the studio for the better part of every day. You know, I don't really take a lot of days off when I'm traveling, you know? So it's like 15 hours. There's not a lot of time you need to have like some fancy accommodation, you know, it's like if I have a bed and a internet connection on Google. Well, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the, the money part of it, if, if you don't mind, which of course, a lot of people uh, that listen to the podcast are always curious about, let's say we wanted to go to New Mexico and record for a week. You know, what, what does that cost me for, for me to hire um, you? Well, I, yeah. I like to work on a sliding scale basis. You know, I like to work within a band's budget. I also like to pay my bills, you know? Um, so my first question would be, you know, well, what's your budget? What does that look like to you? You know, what what's the studio going to cost you? Like, I, I will easily take a small cut and pay if I can work at a good studio just because it's easier for me to work at a good studio. You know, if I have to bust balls to work at some crappy studio, it might cost a little bit more. But like, you know, I, I like to work on a sliding scale and like, 
you know, a lot of the bands I really like don't have crap tons of money. And so I'm kind of stuck in a place where I kind of have to work on a sliding scale, but turns out I don't mind doing that. Or, you know, I, sometimes I'll let bands pay off over a little bit of time. I like working and I'd rather work and, you know, not be a millionaire than to sit at home wishing I had work, you know, and have some big exorbitant price. So I would tell bands, okay, here's what I've been getting lately, an average between X amount and X amount, you know, per day or per project. And, uh, you know, can you come near that? And if the answer is yes, then we're on. If it's not, then we'll work something out. You know, I always try to work something out. Okay. And is there, do bands ever commit you with ridiculously low amounts that you just say, you know, I mean, there's, there's a minimum that I, you know, can't go below. It's pretty rare that I say no. I mean, I'm not saying that I, I accept anything. It's just that bands hardly ever do that. Like if I name like a price that I've been say getting in the past, say six months, you know, cause over time you're, prices tend to go up a little bit or, you know, fluctuate or whatever. So I say within the last six or eight months, I've been getting this and I very rarely had a band say, well, we can't do that or that's out of our range. It, it has happened. It's only happened a couple times where they said, this is what we have. And I said, well, I, I'm super sorry. I can't do it for that. Just, you know, cause there's other bands that want to, you know, that want to pay more and, you know, you could probably find somebody to do that, you know, near where you live or whatever, like, it's, but it happens very rarely, man. When a band says like, we can't afford that, like they, they make it happen somehow. And the gigs you talked about doing for in LA, Tennessee and Brazil, those were far out. So how far out do people book um, Well, right now I'm booked through pretty much towards the end of the year. I'm booked until early November. Yeah. And the, wow. The Brazil thing has been booked for a few months. I I fit that in between two tours I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing a U.S. tour and then a European tour with Agaloc, and I'm, I fit the Brazil thing in between those two <laughs> when I was going to have it sort of free or maybe playing music. But uh, I fit them in because they, they have a specific window, and I've been to Brazil once, and I want to go back. And so I kind of made it happen. But uh, usually I'm pretty booked six months or so out for bigger things i fit stuff in here and there like you know three four days stuff here and there sort of last minute sometimes but yeah i stayed pretty booked like at least three months usually six ahead yeah wow that's great and uh obviously in the negotiation of the money there's also the negotiation of the time because you might say well i'm not free until like if i called you today and said hey man let's let's go record in some remote location I couldn't get you until it would depend on how long you wanted to be there. But yeah, it would probably be most likely that it would have to be at least in October. Do you deal at all in deposits with bands? Oh yeah. Yeah. I have to. Uh, Okay. Tell me about that. Well, it's fairly simple. Like a half up front of the agreed, the agreed price. Generally I don't ask for it until about a month before the, the projected date. Sometimes I ask for it sooner if it's a bigger label thing or whatever. But uh, yeah, half up front is pretty standard. If they can't do all, you know, the, the entire half, like I get a third. That's with bands that I know, like, you know, friends that I trust. I mean, it's not that I mistrust anybody, you know. I mean, I've, I've very rarely, if ever, had a band stiff me. You know, it's just a thing where you kind of live on deposits sometimes, you know what I mean? Like... That cash flow is crucial. Yeah, yeah. And, right and it, the whole lump at the end, but sometimes, you know, you got to take deposits to make the cash flow happen, you know? Uh, that's that's interesting, and that's I, I think a lot of listeners will start to consider that. I know hearing you say it makes me want to do it because, you know, I certainly have had some people, you know, change their mind or, I mean, with all due respect, I think you and I are both musicians first and uh, and possibly engineer second. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to speak for you, but no, it's absolutely true, man. It's but I think we understand the musician mindset and sometimes musicians can be, uh, impetuous. Um, well, they can be flaky sometimes. Yeah. yeah. There, there's no, there's no padding that when musicians are often flighty and I get it, you know, I'm a musician and it's like you, you get excited about some, you know, I had it happen. Uh, I'm supposed to be in the studio with this band from here right now. Um, they got all excited and 
you know, booked time and booked my time and realized that it was, they had bitten off more than they could chew as far as getting time off of work and paying deposits. And, you know, they canceled last minute and it was kind of a bummer to me, you know, because you count on that money coming in, but I, I understand, I, I get it, you know, I can't really be that pissed off but you know it is a bummer when you expect a certain cash flow and it doesn't happen and i was able to fill it up with stuff but uh you know it's a bummer when it happens but it's pretty rare as far as like your attitude towards buying equipment or uh spending your money what what's what are your thoughts on that do you have kind of an, an economic approach to your life that you try to live by man i wish i did i'm, I'm horrible with money <laughs> it's like i i've never been good at saving money and it's like there's times when I've got more money than I can spend. And there's other times where I'm like, Oh shit, I, you know, my rent's due and I don't have it all. You know, it, it's, it's, I don't have really a strategy cause the money is so not undependable. Just like you don't know exactly how much month to month you can sort of estimate, but like me being a sort of a impulse buyer kind of person, like if I have money and I see a piece of gear I want, I'll buy it knowing full well that later I can sell it if I need to, you know, like, I have a high gear turnover a lot of times and like to me, you know, investments are some of the gear that I buy. And if I ever had to liquidate, I know that I could do that. And that's kind of like my savings account, but I don't really have a strategy, man. Cause you can't really plan on how much is coming, you know? It's, right. Right. It's okay. Hard. But wish but, I did. I wish I was better with it, you know? Yeah. And I, th I think that, uh, many, many of the listeners are, are probably thinking the same thing. So I don't, I don't think you're alone in that. It's hard, you know. I think if I had got married or had a kid or something, I would I would have to change that. Being sort of single and and without you know children, it, you know, I'm only affecting myself if I you know can't pay my rent on time or you know whatever. Yeah, and that's kind of the bonus, I I, I guess. If you if you are single and you're just responsible for yourself, the pressure is a little different. Yeah, there's a little more flexibility. Yeah, being in a position with kids and in, in, in my position, I've I took over that building, uh, the the coast building, and, and ran it as Broken Radio Studios for a period of time, and that was probably one of the the biggest ass kickers that happened to me. In what way? Just being able to make the rent every month, or yeah, I was in over my head, yeah. and I uh, I bit off more than I could chew, which you know is a common thing for all of us, and um, yeah, I was I was barely paying the rent. wasn't saving anything. Definitely wasn't bringing anything bringing anything home. And it was, it became a major challenge. So I can what, identify with it. Uh, what year from, was that? What what years was that? That was from two thousand seven until two thousand twelve. All right. Wow. That was a tough time for studios. There were probably worse times not too long before that. But that wasn't a great time for having a studio, especially in the city. Would you agree? I would totally agree. It's really economically tough at in around 2008. So with San Francisco being a challenging place to live, obviously you're finding Portland uh, a little more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I lived in SF, uh, I had a rent controlled apartment that I lived in for 18 years in the lower hate. And, you know, my rent was nothing, man. I paid like 400 bucks and, uh, so it wasn't a, a super big challenge to make the rent, but uh, then I moved to Oakland for some unknown reason, uh, and uh, you know I had to, you know I had a girlfriend and dogs, and I had to make the rent every month, and I I had to work a lot harder, but I I managed to make it, you know. But I wouldn't have wanted to own a studio, that's for sure, you know. Cause, uh, yeah. I was working a lot at Shark Bite, and uh, you know he was having trouble keeping his head above water. And I saw that happening. That's when I started doing my, you know, I, that's when I bought a pro tools rig and started mixing from my house. Cause a lot of bands couldn't afford the studio plus the guy. Um, so every house I've lived in since 2006 or seven, I've had to have a place where I could mix. Um, but yeah, the Bay area, it's even tougher to live now, man. Like, the only way I could afford to live in the Bay Area after I left SF was to live in like East Oakland. And it was, that's no joy at all, you know? As far as uh, when you make a decision about a house that that you rent, I'm, are you renting at this point? Yeah, yeah. And when you, when you make that decision, are you looking for a property that is, obviously you want to have the space inside to accommodate your mixing and recording needs, but are you also scoping out the property for intrusion with neighbors as far as, you know, you don't want to be 
upstairs from say a young couple with a new baby? Right. Yeah. That's a really good question. Uh, uh, when I was in San Francisco, I was in a, in the middle flat of a three flat building and, you know, I had to have certain hours and sometimes mix on headphones and it's kind of a hassle, but, uh, you know, in Oakland, nobody seemed to care. I was more concerned about getting broken into, you know, over there here turns out that, uh, a friend from San Francisco that we actually both played in the same band, Blessing the Hogs. Um, he was the guitar player before me. And now he, he moved up here, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago. And uh, he uh, builds hovercraft amps. He's got an amp shop in the garage. So, you know, noise isn't really a thing because he build they make amp noise all day. And I'm in the other part of the house mixing and stuff. So that was a godsend. Wow. That's great. It worked out really cool for me. It's somebody I've known forever. And you know, it's a, it's a musical household, like amps and mixing. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as far as people that you currently look at other engineers and producers and mixing guys uh, and gals, um, who, who is it out there that you're really inspired by these days? Who's doing work, not necessarily in the same genre, or it could be in the same genre. Who are you? Who do you? Who do you dig these days? Um, you know, that's a that's always a hard and good question because, like, I I don't spend a lot of time, uh, like, when I'm not working, listening to music. If it, that that sounds weird, I know. But, no, no, it totally makes uh, sense. Like the last thing I want to do when I'm through 15 hours of mixing is put on something that you know, is in the same genre or something. I admire, like, uh, there's a guy, Sanford Parker. Do you know Sanford? Oh, um, yeah, I think Scott Evans mentioned Sanford. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's a few years, he's probably six, seven, eight years younger than me, but we do a lot of the same types of music. We've even collaborated on some records, you know, me record, he mix, vice versa. Uh, I really like what he's doing as far as engineering and production stuff. And I've said it before, one of my favorite producers ever is John Cobbett from Hammers of Misfortune in San Francisco. He is a great, great producer. I wish he did more records, but he mostly just does his own music. I learned a lot about production from him. And uh, Trey Spruance from Mr. Bungle, Secret Chiefs 3, one of my favorite producers. I don't know that he'd consider himself such a producer, but he's a great producer. <laughs> How do you manage the different personalities of bands that you deal with? Like, is there an approach to that that you take as far as like you have a workflow that you like and you stick to it or are you, or are you fairly flexible? You gotta be flexible, man. You gotta be flexible. Like, uh, there are a couple of common things that generally tend to just happen naturally. Like, like the whole over the shoulder thing. Like I do pro tools every day. If I wasn't doing it, I would not want to sit and watch somebody do pro tools. That's just like watching somebody play a video game. It's just boring, you know? And so, Generally, when bands say I want to be there, they are there for a day and they'll be like, okay, well, call me when you have some to upload us or whatever. That, that's the thing that generally happens just naturally. Mm -hmm. uh, bands that think they want to be there for the mixing don't want to be there for a lot of the mixing. You know, they'll come towards the end when we're going down lists of notes of, you know, notes they've made from stuff I've uploaded to them, even local bands. It's kind of the cool thing about Pro Tools instant recall and you, i could basically like be playing it to you right now over skype and you could be giving me notes right now you know it's a cool thing but uh that's one commonality is that bands that say they want to be there don't always want to be there when they see how boring it is to watch right. the back of my head and wonder what i'm doing and it's a waste of time for me to explain it rather than just be doing it so yeah that's uh you got to be flexible man because each band's different you know each band has a different dynamic and for me, the trick is sort of learning that dynamic as quickly as possible if I don't already know the band. There's usually a person that's more of the leader, and usually you, you got to get in there and know it as soon as you can, you know what I mean? Know how they operate. Uh, that's the big trick. And a lot of times I'm able to, to cross that bridge with humor. You know, humor is a big thing. It lightens the mood, and it relaxes everybody, and keeps everything kind of chill and they could be really tense, you know, like I find that humor and, you know, keeping things light when, when appropriate, of course, uh, helps a lot. You know? Yeah. Do you have to deal with a lot of language barriers when, when, when you work with bands outside of the country? Not so much, man. It's like most bands, most people on earth speak English, you know, like I, I do a lot of stuff in Scandinavia, like Norway and Sweden. And a lot of them speak better English than a lot of people I know here, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> There are, you know, 
like colloquialisms and slang and stuff, but and you'd be surprised at how universal even some of our slang stuff is. Um, Brazil is is a different story. Like uh, I don't know if you knew, I lived in Argentina for a year. Uh, no, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I got married down there. Uh, we were trying to get her back in here, um, and it was during the Bush years, and they denied her visa and didn't let her in. And uh, I ended up living down there for a year. I started a studio and I started a band. And there it was a big language thing there, you know, because I came speaking my California Spanglish and they're like, yeah, just speak English, <laughs> you know. But uh, most people uh, over the age of, say, 25 don't aren't really taught English. South America is a kind of a different thing. But in Europe, uh, English is not a big deal at all. Right. Uh, but, yeah, it just depends on where. Uh, what year was that? Because you're not married anymore. No. Um, we had that in all. That was 2006. I had been down there a couple of times to record uh, with this band Los Natas. Uh, I've made like three albums with them. And one time I was down there, we met and uh, I think over the space of a year, we decided to get married. And that was that. And I moved down there to grab her, but couldn't get her back up here. So uh, huh. Argentina's a, a trippy place, man. It's There's a lot. There's We could talk for hours just about that. But uh, yeah, there was a language thing there for sure, you know. Like, it was hard to communicate. I did a lot of sign language with the bands that I recorded. Uh, and uh, my my housemate, who I started a studio with, uh, he, you know, his family's from England. He's like a second-generation Argentinian. He knows English really well, so he ended up being kind of a translator. So I was lucky there. But uh, that's the only time I've really had a, a huge problem with the language. Mm-hmm. Um, I recorded a band from Japan once who came to SF, and we needed a translator because none of them spoke English. That was really hard. It ended up being mostly sign language, you know, universal, universal <laughs> things like, you know, cavemen, air drumming, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, it's pretty rare. I'm curious to know, as far as like life-changing mistakes that you've made over the years that really kind of taught you a major lesson, is there anything that sticks out to you that you, to this day, you can go, oh yeah, I remember when this happened and I learned this from it? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's little things like, you know, technical stuff, I wish I would have done better, you know mistakes like that but uh you know most of the bigger mistakes i feel like were just like youthful sort of juvenile don't know any better kind of stuff like like i don't know in the 90s like there was a lot of partying going on and i used to just i used to party with the bands because it was like part of the thing and i kind of regret some of that because it comes back on you you know like even though they're at the time like hey let's party or whatever you know you're not you shouldn't do that you shouldn't be the engineer in charge of a record and party with the band, even if they say it's cool. That's one thing that I regret doing. Though it was fun, you know, but uh, looking back, it kind of doesn't ruin your reputation, but, it, you know, it makes you look like a little unprofessional, you know what I mean? It's something I learned the hard way, you know? Well, and also it's, like, you're kind of like the designated driver. Exactly, exactly. And even if the everybody in the band's like, oh, come on, dude, you're part of the band right now, Hank, then you can't do your job. You know, eventually they get back to the label, and then all of a sudden you're branded as something that's probably blown out of proportion from what it really was. And, you know, that happened to a lot of people. I wasn't the only one, you know. I, I learned a big lesson from that. I'm still hearing about stuff I allegedly did, you know. <laughs> some of it's true you know most of it's not but it's like I'm, it's you know 20 years on i'm like i did what now <laughs> I, I don't remember that you know there's a lot of fun times but uh you just gotta be professional and it's like i was young and you know didn't really trip on it that much at the time but looking back you know you shouldn't really do that you know have a beer you know whatever smoke a joint at the end of the night if you're into that whatever but don't get loaded with the band. That's a dumb thing to do. That's good advice. I, I like hearing that. And as far as uh, advice for up and coming engineers, mm. you have a lot of experience and you've gone through a lot of different periods, some, some, uh, some booming periods in the music industry and some downward uh, times. So people that are in, in it right now mm. that uh, maybe they've got a few years under their belt, like five right. and uh, they want to, they want to keep going. What's what's the key to perseverance? Um, work your ass off, man. Be be willing to stay late, tough it out. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of hours involved and a lot of hard work, and you know, got to go that extra mile because there's always somebody waiting to take your place. You know, there's a lot of competition. If you're in, on an engineering staff at a studio, if you mess up even once, you know, depending on where you are, there's somebody waiting to take your place. So 
you got to bust balls, you know, um, and try to stay up on the latest stuff and try to just learn from people with more experience, like, you know, listen to your elders kind of thing. Listen yeah. to people with more experience, but, uh, you know, also try to come up with your own ways of doing stuff too. It's, it's a hard balance. Like I learned a lot from, you know, people that knew more than me, but I also feel like I came up with some ways of doing stuff that, you know, was kind of, uh, not the way a lot of people would do it. And that helped me get a lot of business, you know, was, was a uniqueness, but you, it has to be based on something. It has to be based on something, you know, you can't just pull shit out of the air. You know, <laughs> I had one of the working class audio listeners contact me and we did a Skype call and young guy and, you know, he's kind of up and coming in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. What I got out of the conversation was, is that he and the other people he was working with at the studio, like the interns and the assistants, they were economically having a tough time, uh, making it work, uh, without getting a, a second job. So do you have any advice in that department? Like, like they were, this guy was talking about how I think that there was a little bit of fear that they'd, you know, kind of lose their, their position there if they weren't available, right. but, but they were economically having a hard time bridging the gap. That's tough, man. That's tough. Cause you know, a lot of times you're interning for free or not next to nothing or for trade time and you got to pay rent, you know, it's, it's a really tough position to be in, man. Uh, like when I was doing that, I was working in a record store for minimum wage. And then I'd go after eight hours of that, go to the studio and work another eight, 10 hours. And it's like, I couldn't do that now. You know, it's like, uh, my rent was cheap and I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. And it's like, uh, it's tough, man. It's really tough. It, it helps. Like a lot of people I know that are either interning or starting to engineer have jobs sort of in the industry. Like they work in it or like, you know, uh, have a gig with, you know, like, uh, iTunes or, you know, something like that. Um, so they're, they're making money in a related sort of field so that if they all of a sudden get a record, they, they're more likely to get the time off than say if they work at a restaurant or something, you know, right. Or like, you know, I did bike messaging for a long time and you can quit and come back whenever the hell you want. That's a, that's, you don't make any money, but it's a job, you know, <laughs> It's something that will allow you to be able to take off when you need to is pretty rare, but it's, it's kind of, it's kind of the way you got to do it. You know, like, like I said, a lot of people I know that are starting engineers are also working as internet, internet, you know, people or, you know, doing a gig for, uh, you know, working for Skype or iTunes or something like that, you know? Yeah. It's a cool thing when you can do that. If you have to work, say for, you know, a restaurant or a, you know, if you're working construction or something, that's harder because, you know, your boss has to be pretty damn understanding when you're like, yeah, I need the next two weeks off to record a record. It is hard. Or yeah. You have a choice of, you know, sell weed. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not the smartest thing in the world, but I've, I've seen it work out great for people there. You just got, you got to pay the bills somehow. And there's a lot of competition for engineers and you can't get paid enough to make your bills right away. It takes years. I told them, I said, you know, you need to maybe think about doing part-time driving for Lyft or for Uber, because that's something you can control. Yeah. yeah cab driving is a, or, you know, now it's like Uber and stuff, but a uh, cab driving is a way that a lot of people back in the nineties that I knew uh, made their living. Cause you can sort of make your own hours and uh, you can make the hours, not, you know, not studio hours. You just have to have stamina or whatever, but uh, yeah, cabbing and driving is a good way, you know, for a while it was bike messaging cause you know, in San Francisco, you didn't used to have to be a millionaire to live there. You could live on 60 bucks a day. And that was most musicians I knew in the late or late eighties, early nineties were bike messengers. Yeah. You'd have band meetings at the wall downtown, you know, <laughs> uh, but, Oh man, I, how things have changed. Oh man. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Uh, this, this has been great. I appreciate you being on the show yeah, and thanks for having me. You have some good nuggets of wisdom to offer. And, and I, I think people are going to be pleased by that. Cool, so cool. that's good to hear, man. Well, uh, thanks again, man. It's, it's great to talk to you. Yeah. Anytime, man. Uh, great talking to you again and, uh, take care, man. Okay. You too. Bye. See ya. Wow. That was cool. Great conversation there. Definitely. Uh, I got something out of that. I hope you did as well. Hey, remember we're moving on to, uh, starting in April, four shows a month. Some months are going to have five weeks. So some of those months are going to be five shows a month. We'll call those bonus months, I guess. Anyhow, uh, 
Look for those starting next month in April. And thanks for tuning in. Be sure and uh, do as I always ask, please spread the word. Tell all your friends. If you're a recording studio, tell all of your assistants, tell all of your interns. Tune in and uh, learn some new information. Yeah, hopefully we can provide a little insight into the world of recording for them. All right. Thanks again for tuning in and take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.